0: and I had to sit and look him in the eye and say, you have to stop crying because I am not dying, not yet at least, so please stop crying.
1: This may have happened to you or to someone you love. You've just been told you have lung cancer. Chances are, the doctor said much more, but it's almost impossible to remember anything else after those four words.
2: Now what? These three episodes of Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast are designed to help you answer some of the most important questions immediately following a diagnosis. You'll hear from people who've been exactly where you are now. And today they are living, truly living with lung cancer. They will be your guides through the first part of your cancer journey that we're calling The First Seven Days. Thanks for joining us on the Hope with Answers Living with Lung Cancer podcast for this special series we're calling the First Seven Days. So far in this series, we've talked about taking the time to get the right diagnosis, the right treatment plan, and the right team. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. We've also gotten more detail on the new language
1: you need to learn to manage your diagnosis. If you haven't already, You may want to listen to the first two podcasts in this series to find out more about all the details you'll need to gather immediately following a lung cancer diagnosis. And remember, we're calling this the first seven days, but it could be several weeks or even a month before you gather all the information you need to make a treatment plan customized just for you with your medical team.
2: We're going to finish this special series by diving into where to find accurate information about lung cancer online and hearing how others living with lung cancer have found support from their families and for their families. Let's start with Dr. David Carbone, a thoracic oncologist at The Ohio State University who has some great advice on how to use the internet to find good information that will help you and your medical team come up with a customized treatment plan.
3: It is a completely new vocabulary for people, and so I think in that first seven days is a good time to research the information that they can get on, on their on their cancer. But it has to be ideally from validated sources of information. Just Googling lung cancer will get a lot of information, but most of it uh, may be inaccurate. So what I would do is trust websites from reputable organizations like Lung Cancer Foundation of America or other uh, major lung cancer organizations and read that information. It's written for patients to be understandable and educate yourselves on this. I like to say patients are their own best advocates and they need to really understand at some level What's going on in their their workup and their care to be give them the best shot at a good outcome.
2: Dr. Carbone has been a wonderful guide through this discussion of the first seven days from a medical perspective. And by the way, Dr. Carbone is on LCFa's scientific advisory board. He helps further LCFa's mission through scientific and intellectual leadership. We are grateful for all his time and expertise on this first seven days series of podcasts.
1: Now, let's hear from our Speakers Bureau, people who are living with lung cancer, on how they found the most useful information online after their diagnosis. We start with Shelley Ingfer Trebenbach.
4: Once the shock and all that stuff, and I got on my research, and Dr. Google, of course we do that, don't we? <laughs> We're told not to. Everybody tells us not to. Well, then I, of course I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's impossible. I know. So I was on it, and I'm thinking, oh, i got to go someplace else and get some other information. And my ALK diagnosis didn't come until four months after my diagnosis. And so I was just doom and gloom. I was losing my hair, I was being sick on chemo, and it was just awful, and and I just didn't feel at peace. So I went from doctor to doctor to try to get a different type of diagnosis or a different type of treatment plan, and finally one of the doctors said, you fit the categories of this, this, or this, you should have ALK or the EGFR, some type of mutation, and so he sent my um, same block out to the Foundation One, which it had not been sent to. And it came back as positive for elk, where the initial test for just the EGFR and elk was negative. So never give up hope, right? And I just when I got that news, after being on that site for four months, I was like, oh, yes, I hit the lottery." And it was, I was so excited. excited. I got this mutation. <laughs> it just changes your outlook on treatment. I was so depressed and I I, I bet I tried a cartwheel. I don't think I succeeded, but um, it was was just really (laughs) exhilarating and exciting to know that and and I wouldn't have known anything about it had it not been for this online support group was really what it was.
5: I believe that being in touch with the various lung foundations, there is going to be wealth of resources that will inform about the disease and most importantly that I feel is to connect you with other survivors who are perhaps acting as buddies or survivors and they are a tremendous support structure from not only an emotional and psychological standpoint but from an experiential level where they know of their own experiences and treatments and protocols and they are the voices of of the patients And so that's a really powerful place that you can find meaningful information that can help you better prepare for your meetings with doctors and and treatments and so forth.
6: It's not just statistics on the internet. There are sites that tell you what questions to ask your doctor, Mm -hmm. what testing to ask for, where to go for a second opinion, what's the standard of care for treatment you can learn so much on the internet if you go to the vetted sites and the trick is finding those vetted sites but there are the lung cancer um, advocacy organizations LCSM chat on Twitter has a page of vetted sources Um, there are a page, uh, I think it's the NCI that puts out a page of how to find good sources of information on the internet so I I would not say stay away from the internet just don't put too much stock in statistics, which are at least five years out of date.
7: I stayed away from looking at statistics. Frankly, I was terrified of them and, and something in, in me told me to, to sort of click to the next page as soon as I saw numbers pop up, but I, I really counsel against, I've heard too many patients tell me and my own doctors tell me, stay off Google, you know, you're not a doctor, I'm the doctor but I think it's so important for patients to educate themselves and go into their appointments knowing what questions they might want to ask or understanding when it's time to seek a second opinion. All this sort of information really makes a difference in survival outcomes honestly and options you may have so I think it's incumbent on patients to do some internet research but do it wisely Mm -hmm. so there are Great sites out there to find, um, and and they're not not that hard to hard to find if, if, if you if you
8: just look around for a little bit. Say so it's hard to tell people um, to stay off the internet because I think education is crucial. I mean we have to. I mean it's hard. I'm trying to put myself back into the place I was when I was first diagnosed. It's easier to say now, you know, educate yourself and you know, look for these credible sites of course, but I know when I was diagnosed eight and a half years ago, you just found statistics, you didn't find a lot of hope or other stories and I was able to um, connect to others online as well and learning from the other patients because I knew I didn't have resources or that kind of support around me, other people that could help me navigate that that whole thing, you know, what do I do now? and learning from these other patients that had been around or had a little bit more experience than I did, you know, telling me about the biomarker testing and telling me, you know, how to deal with the side effects I was dealing with. And um, I mean, knowledge really is power. I mean, you have to, like she said, it, it statistically it does show that people have better outcomes and survive longer by how can you make informed decisions about your treatments if you don't even know what all your options are. So I tell people all the time, you have to at least learn the basics about your disease, even the ones that are still trying to bury their head in the sand, you know, it's, I'm sorry, but this is your life. It's, you have your little pity party and be sad, but now it's time to get ready and move forward. Like you have to be in
2: survival mode. That's a great description by Lisa Bonanno. You have to be in survival mode to make sure you're getting information from trustworthy sites on the internet. You heard several Speakers Bureau members talk about finding accurate information and camaraderie on the internet after their diagnosis. That's right. And you heard from Shelley Ingford-Triebenbach, A.J. Patel, Janet Freeman-Daly,
1: Lisa Goldman, and Lisa Bonanno. Coming up next, you'll hear the group talk about how they found support from their families and for their families.
2: The Hope with Answers, Living with Lung Cancer podcast is produced as part of LCFA's mission, raising the public's awareness and serving as a resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Welcome back. Family support is such a critical part of Living with Lung Cancer. But often, talking to family members about a lung cancer diagnosis is very emotional and challenging. Of course it is. The challenge is to be
1: direct and honest, but also hopeful and supportive. And that support goes both ways. So take a listen as members of the LCFA Speakers Bureau shared some of their experiences and ideas for talking to family members
9: some of the members of my family because my kids are all in their twenties were trying to become oncologists overnight and experts and that's not what we needed what we really needed was to know the right questions to ask Mm -hmm. and of course you know everybody's handling it their own way so it really was a matter of going in there finding out what we needed to know so that we could ask the right questions and get that kind of peace and as far as looking Uh, at the other sites, if there was no story of hope and there wasn't any good news, it was the wrong place for me to be. Um, And at that time, a new drug had just been released and it was all over in commercials. And I had friends calling me up and I said, I remember telling them, and I was in the hospital pretty doped up from, from um, being full of fluid and they're like, well, you know, I heard about this new medication. I said, you know, if my doctor has to hear about it, like on the nightly news, that's not the drug that I think I want <laughs> And it's certainly not the doctor I want. So, you know, one medication is not a fit all, but I need to have that kind of confidence in my doctor. And the only way I can have that confidence is by being able to ask them questions and intelligent questions. And then if I had more questions, come back and re-ask the question. And as annoying as it gets with my take my husband to the doctor, because he asks the same questions five different ways, five different times, and I'm like so moved on. But a lot of times he gets more information out of it than I do. You want to be honest, you want to be open, but you also know they Google and they've got numbers, and they're gonna read your mood more than they're gonna read anything else. And it was my daughter's birthday and she was turning 25 and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what to say I thought you know I'm gonna need the night to sleep on this so uh, we slept that I slept that night well I slept we'll call it that and woke up the next morning my leg collapsed and I ended up in the hospital um, filled with fluids I had to tell the kids and went into the hospital through the emergency room thinking of having a heart attack, thinking it's from the anxiety the doctor had just told me I had cancer. And so I'm in there, and they're like, okay, well, why, why is it you think you're here? I'm like, well, I have lung cancer. The doctor says, oh my God, I'm so relieved. I thought I was gonna have to tell you. <laughs> so how did you know? So I, they called me yesterday, and this man spent most five minutes telling me what a relief it was, and I'm thinking, in the meantime, I've gotta call my kids, tell them I'm in the emergency room, and explain to them why and how and legitimately and how did i tell them um, it kinda had to happen and I still have every time like i've had three occurrences, three occurrences every time that is still the hardest part and i wish i had an easy recipe for it open and honest is the only thing you can do it's open up a whole new level
6: of communication that's still hard going back to kind of the things that you would want to do in the first you know stage of your diagnosis, having the perspective of my husband being di- diagnosed 14 years ago and being a mom, I think one of the things that we decided early on that really, I'm, I'm so glad we did it this way, is we decided, Michael and I decided, we would never lie to our children. Right. That that was extremely important because that would break the trust that we had with them. And so we were very open, but we followed their questions. If they didn't ask, we didn't tell. But when they asked, we would explain things to them. We knew they were going to go online. We knew they were going to read all the worst statistics. But we kept telling them, you know, we've got the best medical care. We're taking great care of dad. And we were very open. And and to this day, they they really trust us. They know that, you know, if we say things are okay, they're okay. And I'm really glad we made that decision from the very beginning, because the easier thing would have been to just lie about it and try to cover it up. So I'm really happy, you know, for any, anyone that has children, I think it's really important. But you do have to take care of yourself. And I have wonderful friends that would take me to lunch and I kept up my exercise and I had my routines. And I think that's also super important. Plus it's very important to, as a wife that our relationship just isn't based on me being a caregiver. Mm. I still want a husband and he still wants a wife and that's outside of the illness. So I think it's, you have to make a conscious effort to make that part of your relationship still. It's very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. So these are the things I've learned.
8: I think we forget that a lot as patients. Our Mm -hmm. caregivers are those unsung heroes that so much is focused on us as a patient that um, I even said to her one time, we've traveled together before with, with both of our moms. And one night we were saying, I said, you know, I can't remember the last time I like really asked my mom, how are you right now with this? You know, Because they just put on that face and get in that mode of helping and taking care of you, but we forget that there's so much that they're dealing with and they feel like they don't want to burden you with, but at the same time, they're carrying so much of that weight. I'll
10: never forget my husband's doctor when we were at an appointment. And he turned to Roy, my husband, and said, you know, Roy, you're going to get all the best care and attention that that we can give. You're going to be taken care of. And then he said, I want to know who's going to take care of her. And he said that, and we were both like, well, no, I'm fine. Of course, I'm (laughs) fine. But of course, I wasn't fine, but just him saying that kind of gave me permission to say yeah i do need help through this journey
0: obviously it's a lot thrown at you in a very short amount of time and those first few days after my diagnosis my husband was crying all the time Um, we were high school sweethearts we've been through a lot together but definitely nothing like this and i had to sit him down one day when the at the time they were two and a half and six months old Um, and I had to sit and look him in the eye and say, you have to stop crying because I am not dying. Not yet at least. So please stop crying. And for him, a light bulb went off that I wasn't going to go anywhere, at least not anytime soon, even with the dire circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for my dad, a turning point within those first couple weeks was me talking about the future. And he looked at me and he kind of funny and he said i'm just really proud of you i said what he said you're you're choosing to live you're choosing to fight this thing and i can see that a lot of people you know even in your circumstances with young children some people would just not fight and i kind of looked at him like what are you talking about i mean how can you not try to live um so me actually standing up and being the strong one for my particular family um, was kind of the turning point for everyone in their own coping.
2: That was such a powerful conversation among our Speakers Bureau members, most of them currently living with lung cancer and as you've heard several family member caregivers.
1: One of the voices you heard was Kim Norris, the co-founder and president of Lung Cancer Foundation of America, who lost her husband Roy to lung cancer in 1999. We wanted to bring her in to wrap up this series on the first seven days, a project that's partly based on her own experience.
10: Uh, this pr- part of what LCFA does is near and dear to my heart because you never quite forget when you're newly diagnosed, whether you're the patient or, or the family member, it leaves the profound impact. But in in hindsight, I look back, and I realize Roy didn't get his first treatment until about six weeks after he was diagnosed. Now, what were we doing all that time? We were looking for a doctor. Roy used to say that he would know he found the right doctor. When the doctor looked at his scans, and rather than backing up and saying, oh, no, leaned in and said, hmm, interesting. And we did. We finally found that doctor, but it took a while. And then we, we gradually started educating ourselves. It's like learning a whole new language. And back then, we didn't even have the choices you have now. So today, a crucial part of that is, because there's so many treatment options available, which is amazing and incredible, but you need to understand it. You need to understand what's the difference between immunotherapy and targeted therapy. What's a biomarker? What does testing mean? What does next generation sequencing mean? Those are all new terminologies that you never thought you'd have to learn before. And the other thing that's really important is putting your team together. And your team is not only your medical team. As I said, it took us a while before we found the right doctor for us. So it's not only finding your medical team, which means you don't have to go with the first doctor you see. Ask around. Ask around for recommendations to find a thoracic oncologist, someone that really specializes in lung cancer. I would highly recommend that but also your family and friends, the team you need there. Who's not only going to go with you to doctor's appointments and help you understand everything they're telling you, but also who's going to take the kids to school and who's going to help you do the the grocery shopping when you're overwhelmed and you can't do it. It's important to put the team together. And as a part of this, this series, the first seven days, And again, understand, we just randomly pick seven days, it could be seven weeks. We put together a document of seven steps that you can be looking into. And again, it's not just seven, we're just using that as a metaphor, as something to work from. But I think if you go to that, think about it, and probably the other thing I wanna recommend is, when you're first diagnosed, you're so overwhelmed Take a deep breath and I know you wanna get it out really fast. I know that just feels imperative, but there's so many options now. Think of it this way. It's important that you get the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. And the good news about lung cancer is most of it, not all of it, but most of it is slow growing. So waiting six weeks, for the most part, probably won't make a difference unless you have a critical medical need. So with all that, that, those steps and what needs to be done, I just, I'm sorry you're on this journey, but we're gonna do everything we can to help you through it. And I think this first seven steps can really help make a difference.
2: Thank you to Kim for everything she and LCFA are doing on behalf of lung cancer patients and their families. Thank you also to all the members of the LCFA Speakers Bureau and Dr. David Carbone of the Ohio State University for sharing their expertise and wisdom for this first seven-day series of podcasts.
1: Thank you for listening and join us next time on the Hope with Answers
2: Living with Lung Cancer podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.